You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Marielle Moronta Sanchez. Marielle is a community advocate, equity-focused strategist, and chief of staff within the New York State Assembly. A native Brooklynite, Marielle grew up in a family that was steeped in the Pentecostal faith, and she was reared with all of the values and rules that come along with that particular Christian movement. But when she became pregnant at age 16, despite her family's willingness to support her as a young mom, she made the decision to get married and leave not only her church and all of its members' judgment, but also her parents' home. Marielle also withdrew from school. These choices did not come without challenges, which included a 10-month stay in a shelter. But with the help of strong advocates, she found her way back to school and graduated as valedictorian of her class. Marielle went on to pursue a bachelor's degree from Marymount Manhattan College. By the time she was a senior, she was a mom of three. But with a strong support system, she graduated with a BA in English and started her professional career as a single-stop benefits specialist, advocating for those in need the same way others had once done for her. Marielle would later spend nine years in various roles in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office before embarking on her current journey in the State Assembly. She acknowledges what we know to be true that it can be challenging to affect change even when you have a seat at the table. She's also sacrificed her own professional and academic interests for her family's financial security. But Marielle is still deeply passionate about transformative work on a larger scale, and her story is far from over. So before we get into it, one note about this episode. As many of you know, we've been conducting these interviews virtually due to the pandemic, and technology does not always cooperate with us. So you may notice throughout the interview that at various points, Marielle had a bit of technical difficulties where her voice goes out for a second or two. But not to worry, the substance of the interview is still there, and we hope you enjoy. Marielle, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. I feel like this is going to be a good conversation um, based on what I know about your story, number one. But number two, it is so hard for us to get women on the show uh, that I'm always super excited uh, when we're able to lock someone down. Um, Our gender needs to be represented a lot more. It's not for lack of trying, but it's just harder to get to get women to agree. I think we just overthink things a little bit more than men do. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm very excited to, to have you today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So let's jump into it. Who is Marielle Moronta Sanchez? Marielle. Uh, well, Marielle is um, a mother. Um, I've, I've been a mother most of my adult life, and I can tell you more about that later. But um, mother, first and foremost, is my, I like to say it's the most revolutionary act I'll ever do in my lifetime. Um, I'm a community advocate. Uh with the focus on social justice. And so in both my personal and professional life, um, that's what I, I focus on. And I, I work really hard to make sure that the things that I do in my life have that kind of lens. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I've been a mom the most of my life, my adult life. And so I spent a lot of my energy kind of instilling social justice values in my, in my kids. I have a two teenage boys and a 12 year old daughter. Um, which um, I I became a mom when I was 16 years old. And so I've spent, I'm 32 now, I'll be 33 in August. So I've spent um, 17, close to 17 years um, doing this revolutionary act. 
So let's let's talk about that uh, young motherhood, because, of course, that and and Demarcus and I were talking uh, before we actually jumped on this call. And I was saying motherhood is its own form of activism, right? Preparing the next generation and and helping to shape their view of the world um, and helping them to continue and sustain a legacy as well. So I'm interested to unpack sort of your journey, uh, particularly finding out that you're going to be a mom at that age. So tell me a bit about your your upbringing before motherhood. So I come from a very um, warm home, a very Christian home. Um, both of my parents um, were and continue to be very um, uh, church-going, you know, Pentecostal. Um, there was a time, a good chunk of my childhood where they were a part of a, a church that was pretty extremist um, in their kind of views. Um, and so that was tough. That was rough because, um, you know, in hindsight, of course, but I, I know that as parents, they wanted what was best for me and they were trying to instill values and, you know, good morals and make sure that, you know, I had a good foundation to start a life. Um, But I think that being growing up in that environment kind of created this rebellion in me. Like I felt like I didn't have enough. I felt like I wasn't um, connected to people. I felt isolated. And so um, that's not to say that that's the reason why, you know, I had unprotected sex and, you know, and, and became pregnant. But I would say that a lot of the choices that I made as a teenager or as a a preteen were because I felt so isolated and, but, I, but it was a loving home other anyway, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, I, I believe that I am where I am today because my parents um, and my partner's parents um, really created um, an, an, an opportunity for us to thrive, even though we had to make some really difficult choices. Um, and so, yeah. So as someone who grew up, uh, was born into the Pentecostal faith, uh, <laughs> I have firsthand knowledge of um, that environment and what it's like. I mean, and people who didn't, you know, people, you talk to people who grew up in church and they're like, oh yeah, I, I grew up in church. Like, I understand what that means. And I'm like, no, but did you grow up Pentecostal, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's a difference, right? Um, there's a level of fear-based theology and legalism, um, that is born out of the Pentecostal faith, right? And on one hand, it's like, wow, you people really lead a disciplined life, which is <laughs> commendable. Um, but there is not a lot of room for error. Um, and there's not a lot of room for what they deem to be radical ways of thinking. And, and radical is anything that's more liberal than, than what they believe, right? So how did you navigate at 16, having to tell your Pentecostal parents, hey, I've got a baby on the way. Well, I'll tell you, look, even thinking about it, I get goosebumps because um, my mom knew I was pregnant before I told her. Um, she was, you know, very vigilant of, of us and paid a lot of attention. Um, and she was the one that's like, we're taking you to the doctor um, and, and you're getting a pregnancy test. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, the day that we did that, and obviously the test results came back positive, the disappointment on my dad's face, like my mom was angry, but she already knew because I don't know, I guess she was tracking my period. Who knows how she knew mother's instinct, you know, um, as a mother myself, I can imagine that, you know, I could tell if something's up with my daughter um, or my son, um, but the disappointment in my dad's face and like, 
he looked surprised. You know, that I think was very painful. Um, and I think that even to this day, I try to like overcompensate for that. Um, and so, you know, it's, I remember being embarrassed, um, excited and like just kind of, um, sad that my, my dad was so disappointed. Mm -hmm. Well, I've seen this play out, um, in church families and there are a couple of different ways it can go. Right. And, and sometimes there's the sadness and disappointment, but like the, the soon to be grandparents get over that. And the community really rallies around this new life that is, is frankly, I believe a gift from God under any, you know, under any circumstance, whether it's having a child as a teenager, premarital sex or what have you. But then I've seen other instances where, um, People that I know personally who they've been made to stand in front of the church and and confess what has happened and that they have, you know, a child on, on the way. So after that initial shock and disappointment from your dad, was your family able to come to an understanding and embrace you um, and support you in bringing this child into the world? Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately. I think that um, like the initial shock and disappointment um, wore off and it was immediately about making sure I was comfortable, making sure we found a doctor and, and they did most of that footwork. Like my mom, like talking to her friends, like what, what, uh, uh, obstetrician can she go, you know what I mean? And, um, cooking for me and, you know, making sure I'm okay. Um, so it was the, that, that I, you know, I don't know if it's called the honeymoon phase, but that period between like right after, you know, they were disappointed. I would say maybe it was like a couple weeks, maybe less, um, to the point where it's like time to give birth. Like I was like the most important thing to them. And I bet if you ask my sister who we all, you know, we were all, the four of us lived together at the time, she was, you know, like, hello, what about me? <laughs> like, cause I was the center and the focus of, of the attention. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, as you know, I, I'm, I'm with the partner that, that I had my, my, my son with and uh, my other kids with, and we, he was 17 going on 18 at the time. And, um, we wanted to be together. Right. But this was a Pentecostal environment. And so, um, we, there were still disagreements between myself and my parents because, you know, we were like, okay, well, we've already got a baby. So we're kind of together already. (laughs) Um, but they were kind of like, you know, that doesn't matter. You still, you know, you know, need to abide by the God's rules and the house rules and all that. And so, um, you know, we, we got married. Um, uh, my mom signed off for me to get like legally married. Um, and we made the decision, uh, to leave our home. Um, we had nowhere to go, but you know, my parents were like, you you have always a, a place to stay here, but you can't bring Carlos. Like, you know, he's got to stay with his mom. Um, and I think part of that was that we, you know, my mom, we lived in a small space. My sister was still there. Like, I'm sure that it was a lot of like, um, you know, and also like the reality, like, oh, your baby girl is an adult now. Well, it's becoming an adult now. He has to make adult life decisions. Um, and so maybe a little bit of a denial there, but we made the decision and Carlos's mom was just not having it. She was like, she was upset for way longer than my parents and it took her a minute to get around. Um, but so he, we had no real place to go. Um, and so we ended up in a shelter, which was rough. And my parents did not want me to do that. Um, and I know they didn't, but 
I had to do something because, you know, we had this baby on the way, you know, we wanted to be together, you know, 16 year old me, like, you know, stress thinking the end of the world is coming unless something happens now, you know, in hindsight, probably would have been smarter, right. For us to live apart, save some money, you know, get jobs, finish school. But of course, you know, that's just not the way it rolled. And so we, we spent um, some time in the, in the shelter system was, which was awful and horrible. And I would say helped to shape. So the, the interactions that I had to have with all of these different service agencies, because the, because I was a teen mom, because I, um, was not in school at the moment because of, um, we needed, you know, food stamps and, and Medicaid and, and things because we didn't have any resources. Um, so the interactions I had with all these agencies really created a, a passion for me to want to fix some of these systems um, because they, they were built to like create a cycle of poverty. Like we, I, I mean, I can go on and on about those experiences, but we just, you know, from the time that we were able to finally get some sort of a subsidy to to move into a place, but just getting childcare paid so that I can go to school was almost like they were like, well, you can go to a two-year school and you can take it an EMT trade and, and then we'll pay for it. But I was at a four-year school and I was like an English major. They were like, yeah, no, that's, that's not covered. Um, and so... There was, um, we, we faced a lot of barriers, I would say, and challenges to kind of like figure out a way to thrive and, and get out of this kind of um, cyclical issue um, where, you know, we didn't want to be a statistic. You know, we didn't want our kid. And to this day, you know, I mean, there's something that I continue to thrive for. Like, I don't want my child or my kids to um, live in desperation. Um, and and I don't want anyone's kids to live in desperation. So I spend a lot of energy thinking about how do we not let people live in desperation in one of the richest countries in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, this is, you know, I, my first job out of college, I, I worked at a, a single stop with basically helping people connect to entitlement benefits and fighting for them at the fair hearings when people would, when they would try to like take away their benefits and stuff. Um, and I'm going to tell you, it was my favorite job. And it's always been my favorite job because it's the one where I'm, I feel like I was the most connected to helping people solve problems. Um, but it didn't pay well. Of course not. <laughs> so, you know, those are the kind of like difficult decisions that, you know, we've had to make over time. And um, I was, I was mentioning this to DeMarcus that, you know, I've, I have this guilt. I feel this, this heavy guilt because, I want to be doing more, right? I feel like all this experience that I've had professionally, but personally, like, you know, not just being a young mom, but, you know, I had dropped out of school, you know, we, you know, it, and that's a whole other story. Like there, there was a lot, like I've done and been through so much that it's, it feels guilty that I'm not doing more to kind of change things. Um, but the problem is that doing more to change things, you have to have resources. It's like these jobs that don't pay and I have to feed my kids. And like, so I feel guilty because I've taken jobs that don't do that. Right. And so I've tried to, or don't do that directly rather. And so I've, I've tried to find ways in each of these kind of places that I find myself and how do I make a difference here and now today? How do I change this one particular life here and now today? Um, and so it's been a struggle, constant struggle to this day. 
Absolutely. And I definitely want to unpack those feelings of guilt for the sacrifices that you've had to make um, for your kids. But before we get there, I want to go back to your experience navigating the the world of social services um, and tying that to religion, because, you know, I think there's a belief in those who've grown up in evangelical forms of Christianity that when your life starts to unfold that way, that you've fallen out of favor with God, right? When things are not easy and they're not really coming together, it's like, oh, well, you, you made poor decisions and you sinned and God has turned his back on you. Did you feel that? No, no. And I'll be honest with you, like my, the way that the church reacted to me being pregnant, mm-hmm. like my mom didn't even let, like, she didn't even require me to go back to church. Like she's mm-hmm. like, it's up to you. I I leave it to your, it's your decision. We'd love you to be there. But the, the reaction I got from the members of the church, oh God, I didn't want to be nowhere near those people. And so, um, to be honest, like I started, I disconnected from the faith entirely. Um, and, and I haven't been back to church since, um, physically. Right. So I'm not a member of any church. I, I still very much think I'm a Christian and say that. And my mom's like, Oh, you don't be in church. (laughs) Um, but you know, like the fundamental beliefs of Christianity, Christianity. Um, and, and, you know, and that's complicated too, because, you know, as you, as I started to learn more about like the, the, the foundation of Christianity and where it comes from and, and how it's very much built on some white supremacist beliefs. Like I, I, so I don't preach Christianity to my kids. I preach there's a higher power. I preach be honest, be good, treat others the way you want to be treated. Um, equity first, justice first, you know. And and so so in the and that way I say I'm Christian, right? But mm-hmm. my mom doesn't. She says I'm not because I'm not in church. Oh yeah, no, you got to have a right hand <laughs> of fellowship. You got to go to a building every week. Maybe Bible study, maybe Friday night revival if you want to be like super safe. You got to do all of those things if you want to call yourself a Christian. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. I know the story. Trust me. Um, But let's talk about like your educational journey as well, you know, because that to know like how far you've come in the work that you've done, being a young wife and mom and then having additional kids as well. I find that all very fascinating also um, and fighting to get help right to go. So what was your academic journey parallel to the things that were happening in your personal life? So I, when I got pregnant with, with Zachary, the, um, I was a freshman, excuse me, I was a a sophomore. So I was like, it must've been the ending or the middle of my sophomore year. And I, I was, I, I just, I was embarrassed to go back to school. So I stopped, you know, and eventually I was considered a dropout, um, but I, you know, up to that point, was a good student. Like, I didn't have any issues with my academics. I mean, except for all the cutting I did with Carlos, <laughs> which is how Zachary happened. Um, <laughs> but but um, I was a good student. So, it, you know, I wasn't necessarily behind, except for now I'm, I'm not in school. Um, and so while we were in the shelter, um, and Carlos had been at that point, he was he was in his senior year and he dropped out as well. And he he dropped out because he was like, I need to get a job. Right. And so he's like trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, a job at the sneaker store, <laughs> paying six dollars an hour. I don't know. Um, when you're when you're 17, 18, like that makes total sense. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like in the immediate. What are we going to do right now? Right. And so um, he also dropped out and we had been out of school. We were in the shelter for like 10 months and um I'm going to say that like six months into the shelter, into being there, we met this counselor. Her name was Faith. 
And you should know, um, I named my daughter after her um, wow. because of the impact she had in our lives. Um, and and I haven't been able to find this woman. I've tried Facebook, Twitter. Anyway, um, so she, you know, she was the, the social worker there and her job was to talk to families and see what they needed. And um, in one of the interactions I had with her, she asked me about school and was like, I was like, yeah, I'd love to go back to school, but you know, I don't know how to do that. I have all these, you know, these kids. And she literally took me to a bunch of different schools um, and like tried to enroll me and basically. And I remember we went to one school, traditional high schools, right? And the school was like, yes, we don't, we don't take pregnant kids, um, women who are pregnant. Um, because at that point I had already been pregnant with David. So Zachary, David, and then Faith, you should know. So I think they're like, um, Faith is the furthest apart. She's, she's two and a half years away from David. But so I had Zach and I was pregnant with David. Um, and the school was like, no. And so we kept searching and she finally, um, you know, she empowered me. Like she gave me all this information. She's like, to all these places. These are the places you can call. Um, but before she did that, obviously she like helped me get to where I needed to be. Um, and we ended up at this school called Brooklyn Academy, um, in, in Brooklyn where we're from. And I hadn't, um, I wasn't old enough for the program because it's like, it was for over age undercredited, um, students. And so, but Carlos obviously was with me. Um, and, you know, we were, the, the lady was like, you know what, let's, why don't I take you up to the guidance counselor and you guys can talk. And so we went up and the guidance counselor, um, I guess was busy or whatever. So we ended up talking to the parent coordinator. Her name was Miss um, Samuels. Love that lady. And she was like, oh, it's not a problem. You're not that much younger. We'll figure it out. We'll enroll you. And then she turned to Carlos and she's like, what about you? And that is exactly how our journey started, um, where we returned back to school. And we both went there and Carlos graduated um, that uh, spring. And I followed him a year later. I actually graduated valedictorian. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like to say that, even though, you know, my, my son's like, mom, you were there for a year. But, you know, it, it was an accomplishment, you know. That is still an accomplishment. accomplishment. It doesn't matter how long you were there. Hello. You came in and beat everybody out. You should brag about that. Hello. <laughs> um, and so when when Carlos finished, he went to um, uh, Kingsborough to a two year school and he was there for a little bit and it didn't work out. And so he ended up not finishing. Um, and it happened to be around the same time where I was um, finishing high school. And, and I was I got into a four year school, Marymount Manhattan College. And, you know, we he really you know, I, and I am completely grateful for this and I don't even know how to ever repay um, the sacrifice he's made. Right. Because this has all been about individual sacrifices um, that I've made, that he's made, that my parents have made, that my sisters have made because they're they've been a part of my journey as well. And um, he decided to to just not continue. Right. And and let me finish. He's like, you know what? You go. Don't worry about work. Go full time. Finish. Um, and then we'll figure it out. And so that's what I did. Um, I had a really strong support system at Marymount. Um, I was a part of the HEOP program. The HEOP program is Higher Education Opportunity Program. Um, and Marymount is predominantly a white, um, white students. And I think it's still that way today. But we were a group, of, a small group of students. I want to say maybe 20, maybe less. I can't remember exactly, but that was it. Those were the black and brown kids in that school. Wow. <laughs> and so it, it really created a community um, for me. And I had this um, 
uh, the director of the program, her name was Blanca, who was just, she was a hard ass. She did not let me slip. She didn't let me make excuses. She's like, okay, yeah, so you have to do this for your kids. <laughs> like she would just, you know, every time I would be like, I just can't right now. I just I cannot. She would just not let it happen. I got pregnant with Faith um, towards the end of my 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 um, time there. And I remember I took an incomplete. So half of the semester, because I was just not doing well. And, um, you know, she kept reminding me, like, excuse me, you have something to do. You have, you know, um, and I got through it. Uh, I ended up going back, taking summer classes before Faith was born. Um, and she was born. And then I went back to school in September. She was born in August and I went back in September and finished, um, thankfully, because I had my mom, my mother-in-law, my sisters who helped to take care of her. Um, And so, you know, I was 19, 20. How old was I? 19. And I had already had three kids, 19 or 20. Um, I just finished my bachelor's degree. And, you know, even, you know, I was talking earlier about the, the, getting the social services um, that I needed in order to make these things happen. Um, the childcare piece is that this is when it happened when I was at Marymount, they wouldn't like pay for it. <laughs> and so, you know, thankfully I had family, but, you know, think about all the people, um, the young women and young men who want to go to school. It's not school's not for everyone, but that want to go to school, but can't because of all these weird policies that really don't make any sense. Um, if you're thinking about, you know, economic, you know, uh, I don't know, development in a capitalist space, right? So like, this is all about money makes money. So how are you going to help someone make money if they can't, you know, go to school, which is the gateway to making money in this place, in this country. Um, anyway, so uh, I did that. And then um, I worked at that place that I love for a little bit. And then I, I took a job um, because I needed more money and I needed real health healthcare. Cause you know, at that point, you know, once you make a little bit, you know, food stands, Medicaid, they're like, yeah, okay. See ya. Right. They're like, congrats on doing better. Like, we're not helping you anymore. Um, which is f- fine, except that it would have been nice to have, you know, I remember the struggle and it would have been really nice to have a cushion, right? Like a three months, six months, like, you know, here, we're going to wean you off, you know, don't worry. Um, because it was, it was tough. You know, I was making, I think, $30,000. That was my, my first salary. We had three kids, you know, we had a rent. And so it was, it was tough. It and was in tough. New York is even oh tougher. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was rough. So, but you know, we, we, we figured it out, you know, we pulled through with the help of our families. Um, and, you know, I took this job at the district attorney's office, um, doing community work. Um, and I did, a, I was there for eight years. I left, I just left in 2019 at the beginning of 2019. Um, and I did a lot of different things there, but most of my work was focused on community engagement and like, and I spent a good, I would say six years of the eight, um, running, um, working on, and then running this program called Saturday night lights, um, which basically opened up gyms and gave kids something to do with this idea of crime prevention. Um, and I would say that I, my time at the DA's office, I mean, it gave me my most professional growth, right? I had the most kind of like, I got a bunch of different experiences, a bunch of things I can, you know, add to my portfolio, but it wasn't the kind of justice work I wanted to be doing, but it paid the bills, right? Um, and part of that guilt <laughs> that I guess we'll talk about later, like, you know, 
I always felt guilty working there, right? Because I knew, I knew that sometimes sitting in those conversations with the people around us, that these people had no idea, you know, what the community was going through, but they wanted to throw these weird solutions um, out. And, you know, I often felt powerless, you know, even though I always had a voice and I always say what I feel, um, I was still powerless. Um, and so when I made the decision to leave that place, you would think I tell people it's because I didn't get this promotion, which is true. I didn't get a promotion. Um, but it was also because I felt so like I was doing the same thing over and over again. And I felt like I wasn't making any progress. I wasn't helping to change any lives. So if I'm not helping to change lives and I'm not growing professionally, like what am I really doing here? Um, and my parents are very, they're still upset that I left that job because it was, you know, it's a secure job, a city right. job, you know, like, you know, what are you doing, girl? Um, so I went, I went on tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's perfectly fine. We, we love for our guests to unpack it anyway. And as I mentioned before, we actually press record. Our conversations are very organic and wherever they go is where they go. And that's what our audience actually loves, that we don't stick to an, an absolute agenda. We like to see where the conversation goes. We don't cut people off and try to go in a different direction. So it's, it's perfectly fine. But we've actually um, had this conversation with more than one guest, that generational divide of like, you know, our parents' generation, it was, you worked really hard, you, you know, you got married, you had a family, you got a, whatever good job you could get. And barring catastrophe, like getting laid off for a recession, you kept that job and you got your pension and your, you know, your retirement and you worked until you didn't have to work anymore. And you have this nice little nest egg and you lead a quiet, enjoyable life. Um, our generation, Everybody's not like that. I'm not saying that there there aren't people who who are because yes, that does probably make up a subset of us. But I think um, we're much more of like in their eyes, risk takers. To me, it's not like a radical risk just to leave a city, you know, <laughs> city job to try something else. But for them, it is right. Um, and we will. We a lot of us need to feel like we are making an impact. It's not enough to have a seat at the table. It's not enough to have a voice. We want to feel like we are moving the needle forward. And if that's not happening, um, then we might consider moving on to something else and, and seeking another opportunity. But I want to uh, address something else that you said around the promotion piece, right? Because I've seen this happen over and over again, where someone leaves a job, right? And the not getting promoted is a part of it. But the employer and everyone around you will make it out to be like, oh, I can't believe you're leaving just because you did just because, quote, you didn't get promoted. Not realizing that probably what led to that decision is much more than just an isolated missing out on a promotion. It's everything that went into that. It speaks to the environment, the structural inequality, other issues that may have compounded. And nobody wants to talk about that, right? It's always just boiled down to like, oh, this person left because <laughs> we didn't promote them. And on the surface, that may be what it is very well, right? But oftentimes in these environments and given everything that's going on in the world, the political climate that we're in, I'm having diversity and inclusion conversations a lot. Um, and it's oftentimes that lack of promotion speaks to another issue with regard to upward mobility and the advancement of people of color in these offices. And nobody wants to have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say this. I mean, the that place, um, there are some good people. There's good people everywhere. So right. I just preface by saying there are great people everywhere. It's not, it's not an individual like an assessment on about individual people, right? It's about the structure, about the um, the system in this place. And I would say that 
on paper, they had this um, great vision, right? Connect with the community, uh, connect with them in such a way where they will trust us and we can build community-led solutions with them. Um, so it's all sound beautiful and and great and like, oh, we're gonna have we're gonna have some revolutionary impact right now um, with with this program, with this unit, with the work of this office. Um, but then when you peel back and you're actually like, okay, so what, how do we do that? How are we doing that? Right. And how are we doing that, um, in an office that's majority white and the team that I was always a part of was majority black and brown always. Um, and so the majority black and brown team was responsible for going out into the community in an Island of Manhattan, which is not all predominantly black and brown. Right. But obviously that we had very specific, um, it was a, it, no one ever said it out loud, but it was like, we, we're going to send these black and brown people to go talk to black and brown people. You know, we need them to, you know. And I think that there was um, about the, 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 the individual leaders, right? Because we had some good people there. I think that, you know, there was just not enough of an effort to figure out, well, how do we actually do this work that we say we want to do? And I always had a gripe with that, right? And so you know, I selfishly was able to sometimes kind of like disconnect from that and just focus on the Saturday night lights, focus on this youth program. How do I make this better? Um, the other stuff that the entirety of the unit was supposed to be doing. And, you know, I, it was a little bit of a privilege, right? Because some of my colleagues couldn't do that, right? They didn't have this SNL thing that they can like hide to. And the SNL thing, I think that that's probably why I spent so much time in that office is because it wasn't an it was an office. It was funded through this, through the office, but I got to work directly with like people in the community, running community-based organizations, working with young people. Like I got to actually disconnect and be in the community doing that work. So oftentimes in the very beginning, I was actually stationed in some of the CBOs. I, I had forgotten that I <laughs> worked for this office in some ways. Um, but, you know, even that heaviness that came from that. I mean, this was a, what they call the crime prevention program and kids around us were getting shot, killed, hurt, jumped. We got stories all the time. It was heavy, heavy work. You know, we, we were sent in to create strategies and programs to, you know, protect young people from, from this stuff. And, but not once did we ever talk about, okay, what about poverty? You know, what about, you know, educational inequity? Right. So we, we want to talk about the symptoms of poverty, right? The violence, the whatever, but we don't want to talk about the other stuff. And it's almost like, well, we're the DA's office. You know, that's not really like our thing. It's like, well, you have a hundred million dollars. Maybe instead of a basketball program, you can, you know, do something a little bit more impactful. And I know that's not sexy to say, and I'm pretty sure that people would be offended that I said that, but it's true. You know, you, you can't walk into a community and, and say, I'm going to activate this space that's been dormant. I'm going to open this community center so that kids have something to do as if that's going to solve generational, you know, the issues with generational, um, uh, the failure to have generational wealth in our communities and where that comes from. Right. And I do believe that no matter what agency you are, what your, you know, formal role is can have an impact if they just try, right. Everyone can do something and, and contribute something. And sometimes that means not being the face of a program and giving the money to a place where where that can happen, right? Um, but that's obviously never, you know, was never on the table. And then I, internally, like the the team that was doing the work, some of the people that I worked with, you know, 
felt similar. Like, you know, this is, I don't want to be the black face that goes in front of a, a group of young people and tells them trust the district attorney's office. Um, because oftentimes the district attorney's office was incarcerating in masses our young people, the, the very same young people they're sending us to go talk to um, in our own lives. You know, we as people of color coming from disenfranchised communities, we're also experiencing all of the same things that our young people were experiencing, right? Um, and even like the topic of gun violence, like, you know, it's like conversation is this pie in the sky is you get a room, 15 people that live in the hood that know what it's like, <laughs> you know, have some respect, you know, have some, put some value there because you're not the expert, we are. Um, and so that was the, the, the internal struggle that I always had um, with this place and with well-intentioned people, right? They were all well-intentioned, but that's dangerous, you know? Absolutely. That is the danger right there. Um, so, yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought, but <laughs> yeah. No, I get it. And, you know, I am um, talking about these like programmatic efforts that, you know, people pat themselves on the back for because, you know, we're, we're opening community centers, you know, we're, we're doing kid things to keep kids off the street um, or look at all these black and brown employees that we have. We're diverse. We're inclusive. Um, but when you start to go up the chain, it's like a pyramid. It gets more and more narrow at the top. Right. So um, and that that is one of my frustrations on the corporate you know, side of things is that, OK, you're focused on diversity, but you're focused on diversity at the foot soldier level. Right. But when you start to get to the positions of power and like executive level and real decision making uh, authority, it looks very different. Um, and that's the part that I, I feel like is often falling on deaf ears amongst leadership in all these organizations across government, whatever branch we're talking about or, or NGO space. But there's been a lot of conversation in the last few weeks about whether the tide is actually turning, um, given the, the visibility and the, the focus that's happening across industry. What do you think? Do you think that we're moving into a new era of what it means to address the wealth and income gap in communities, structural inequality, both in employment and uh, in our communities as well. Do you think that we are in a moment of real substantive change? I mean, but yes and no, because part of it feels like, oh, these conversations are present. They're happening. People are inserting them in, in every single, you know, when you're behind the scenes, I work for an elected official. Um, and you know, some of these conversations that are happening about equality and like the budget and how do we make sure we fund things that are, you know, all that. The conversations have been the same. Nothing's changed. And so on the outside, people, you know, you hear in the media, you hear on social media, people are having, you know, these debates and they're bringing um, these issues to light. But in behind the scenes, I haven't I haven't heard a single conversation that's going to drive, the, you know, drive things in a different way. Um or towards real equity, even, you know, just recent with all of the, the issues that the community that I represent or I work in, um, all the issues that they've been experiencing with gun violence, you know, the leaders all got together like, well, we have to do something. Let's talk to the young people. And even that conversation, it's like the solutions where, you know, it, the solution can't be have cops say hello to kids. That's not a real solution, but we've been having that same conversation for 20 years you know I mean? forever ever and ever um and so it's almost like i have hope 
that the people who are younger than me are going to like just be so annoying and they're just going to keep at it and they're going to build their own programs and they're going to create their own spaces and then they're going to drive change. Because that I do feel, I do feel that we have, there's a, a momentum right now with young people that we might be able to like, you know, do but it doesn't feel that way on the inside. So we need to get figure out a way to get those young people in these spaces or create new spaces. But I don't know that it's, 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 it's this moment. Maybe it's the beginning. Right. And that's a, that's a great segue to talk about you. The fact that you're raising three young people <laughs> um, and the professional and the choices that you made academically, because I know you started grad school um, as well and, you know, have put certain things on pause um, for the sake of your children. Um, so I know you alluded to earlier this feeling of guilt about, you know, wanting to take care of your kids, but also being an advocate and um, an activist in your own right and making certain professional choices for that stability. Um, and then also just the guilt that surrounds who you really are and, you know, how you are forced to be in the world for the sake of your family. So let's talk about the new school first. Right. So you started um, an MS in urban policy analysis and management. I believe, uh, at the new school and eventually chose to put that on pause. Is that correct? That is correct. Oh, okay. Um, I think, so I, I, this must've been 2015. Um, I was like, I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to, you know, do more. I have to change the world and, you know, I need more credibility to do that. And so I'm going to go to grad school. Um, and I did a semester and a half. Um, and at the end of that semester, I had got, I had compiled $18,000 in student debt because there was no, there was no like scholarships and stuff for me. Um, and so I decided to stop solely because of that. Um, and you know, I have a, my, my oldest Zachary, he's uh, going to be a senior in September and he's going to be applying to colleges. And so, um, at that point, I think Zachary must've been, what year are we in? 2020? Um, he must've been starting high school, maybe ending middle school, but that was already on my brain, right? Because I have this 529 for him that had like $10 in it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, I have to like make a plan for, you know, because school's like 40 grand a year. Um, so as much as I wanted to be there and as much as I, I was doing well, you know, I, I just couldn't like come to, to like say, feel okay and comfortable, you know, adding an additional whatever, you know, thousands of dollars to student debt knowing well that I might need to, you know, take out some debt for him. Um, and so I stopped and maybe I'll go back. We'll see. I mean, you know, it's, and, and I have seen this firsthand that, you know, there's been opportunities that I've not been able to take advantage of because I don't have, you know, this higher education, um, in grad or graduate degree of some sort. Um, so I know that part of, you know, my upward mobility right, is, is impacted by, by, by me not finishing my degree. Um, but I got to pick my kid first, you know, because he's, he, he can have up more, more upward mobility, sorry. <laughs> um, and he can't have that if, you know, he has to end up, you know, going to, you know, his last choice because I can't afford whatever his first choice is and I have options. And so that decision. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, the, the guilt that I was talking about earlier is just like, I want to be doing powerful, transformative work, right? But I'm a chief of staff to an assembly member, right? And so it's like, those are not, not that you can do both, but in practice, 
I'm not doing anything transformative, right? Um, or at least it doesn't feel that way. And I feel guilty because I feel like with all the stuff that I've participated in, been a part of my experiences, how dare I not figure out a way to inject that right into something to, to produce something for our people, for it's the empowerment of our people. And I'm like, well, I'm teaching them. Um, I'm, I'm a hard ass. You know, I don't, I don't let them get away. <laughs> and I remind them every day what privilege and white supremacy and racism is, you know, even my daughter, um, who has very white skin, uh, you know, we have these conversations, she's 12, but we have these conversations because I refuse um, to have my kids go out in the world acting like it's colorblind or something. No, 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 no. You recognize your privilege, right? And every single space you're in, you make space for those who are black and brown. Absolutely, no matter what, because those seats aren't available. And so if you are in a space, your job is to sit back and let let them go ahead. And it's also interesting, the whole race conversation. I'm like still kind of like trying to grapple and learn so that I can teach to my kids um, because we're all shades over here. You know, from, <laughs> you know we're like the sector, we're like a freaking rainbow. Um, and, you know, we have these really tough conversations about um, the color of our skin and our race and what it all means. And so I have no answers except that I've been reading and I continue to read and try to to learn and, and help them understand. But the basic concept is white supremacy is one hell of a drug, as Blanca Vega says. She used to be the, the HEOP director who pushed my ass in college. Um, and so you have to recognize that and move move in the world knowing that. Yeah. Everywhere you can push. Right. And I think it's commendable that you're having conversations, even if you don't have all the answers about colorism, right? Because there's I'm I'm always like reading the chatter online and looking at the documentaries and there's this idea that like if you as a black person address light privilege that you have something against light skinned people and that is not necessarily the case like we can talk about the privilege of it and talk about how we can work together right there 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 are many forms of privilege that come from the way you speak to where you went to school to you know all of that um, and, and I don't know when it got conflated, like that if you actually address it, that that means that you are against people who are lighter complected. I don't I don't know when that, that happened, but I think it's important to have those conversations with kids to understand the ways in which they may be privileged and the importance of leaving the door open behind you and creating a space and blazing a trail if you do have that privilege and using it for good. So I commend you for having that conversation. Um at, at such a, a young age as well. And working, um, working, were you working <laughs> as chief of staff um, for an assembly member, which, you know, people will hear that and kill for those jobs, right? Because it's an entree into politics um, with, with hopes of like doing something more for sure. Do you aspire to say, and the, the beauty of having kids younger is that they're all going to be out of your house. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Few years, right. So um, do you do you aspire to say, OK, once we get to this phase with the kids, I'm going to go in a different direction? I thought about um, law school. I've thought about becoming a nurse. I'm going to tell you, I'd be having these wild, wild dreams. Um, you know, I thought about becoming like opening my own business. Like I 
Um, but to be honest with you, I'm tired. I, I don't I don't have the energy to make any of these wild like ideas come to fruition, um, at least not now. Right. Um, and I would say that I, I took this job and I have absolutely no interest in ever being a politician. I never did. And it's so funny because every time, you know, I when I first took this job and I'm talking to my friends, you know, most of the people I know are like, oh, you should run. You should run for something. You know, you someone would vote you in for something. And I'm like, I have zero interest. And then after doing this for a year, I, I know for a fact I do not want to be an official. Um, and that's no, I should say, that's not a dig to my guy that I work for. It's not about him. It's just the whole system. It's not something I want to be a part of. But um, you know, I took this job thinking I'd be able to influence policy and, you know, help to make change. And, you know, I've, I've been able to do sprinkles of that, but not in the way that I thought that I was going to be able to do it. And so I think that, you know, my next move, uh, my next thing, um, I'm going to keep with the same, you know, how do I impact lives? How do I create um, spaces and opportunities? Um, how do I, you know, use my my experiences to do something, to change something that's wrong? means and what that looks like today. Um, I think that when the kids are out of the house, I'm going to be very bored because I spend a lot of my time, you know, like, you know, taking care of them, right. And making sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so there's gonna be a lot of free time. So we'll see. I have no idea what the world, what what's in it for me next. Yeah. And I always say like motherhood is the hardest job on the planet. Um, probably teachers following a close second. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, I do want to say like, I, I definitely uh, understand and have high regard for that desire to wanting to do deeply, you know, transformative work um, as like your full time job. But the reality of it is you're doing transformative work every day as a mother. Right. And, and I think oftentimes as a society, we don't put the same value on that. Right. But if you think about um, statistically the direction in which your life should have gone. Right. Versus where it is now and what your kids are, are being set up to be and do in this world. That in and of itself is a transformational experience. Right. To continue to persevere in spite of circumstance and being in a shelter and not being in school and getting back in school um, with struggle. Right. And then being told, like, OK, if you want to go pick up a trade we got you from a social services pr perspective. But if you want to go get a bachelor's degree, like, no, thanks. Like, go go figure that out on your own to persevere in spite of all of that and build this life and build this story, even though being a mom of three and a wife may require certain choices and certain sacrifices. There's something to be said about the revolutionary act of continuing to persevere in the face of adversity. And I think you need to be commended for that. Right. Because there there are many people who don't have a vision for like how to advance. Right. So like all I know now is I have this kid. I've got another kid on the way. Right. I've, I've married this man. We're trying to figure it out. We don't have the education. Um, and shout out to the village around you in terms of the folks who are like, nope, like suck it up. But there are plenty of people who are in the, that situation and never get out of that cycle of poverty through no fault of their own. It's just, they can't, you know, for whatever reason, it's the trauma. It's they, they don't have the right social worker or something where they get stuck right there. So the fact that you're still, after all these years, uh, uh, all the things that you've been through, all the exhaustion, 
still having the conversation of like, what could I do next? To me, that in of itself speaks to who you are as a person. And I think that's what we're focused on in this show. And that's what the slogan is like all about, that we're all trying to figure it out. And nothing about our lives is a smooth trajectory. When you when you think about what we go through as communities of color, black and brown folks, and what we have to face and the added layer of difficulty, right? And adversity. And we can talk about personal choice, right? And making mistakes, we all make them. But the reality of, of it is how those mistakes affect us as people are very different, right? As, as black and brown folks. Um, so I just want to take a moment to encourage you because, you know, I think you have like the 26er way of thinking. Like we, every day we want to be knocking out of the park, career, family, you know, all the things that we're passionate about. But everything doesn't always happen um, in a linear way, in the way that that we would expect. And, you know, we may end up having to be extraordinary in a way that we did not envision for ourselves. And we deem that ordinary because it's not the vision that we have, but it is absolutely an extraordinary act. So I com- I commend you um, that you are, are helping to shape the next generation, but you also haven't lost your fire. And while you are like trying to figure it out today, what the next thing looks like, and it's like, no, I'm not trying to run for office. This is a job to help take care of my family. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that amazing things are going to happen. And they may be in a form and a shape that you never actually envisioned for yourself. Um, but I've been doing this show now two and a half years and I've like talked to a lot of people and there are certain common threads amongst all of them. And I know that you have it. So I'm excited to see uh, to see where you go and, and what's next. Um, and I'm also excited to see who your kids become because the education that you're giving them and the opportunities that you're helping to create from them, um, that is how you take your experiences, right? And, and use them for what I deem to be ministry, right? Because people, we talk about ministry and church and all that other stuff. In traditional sense, this is ministry. This is activism. This is th- what the revolution looks like. And it's helping to invest in what are those seeds and the generation that's behind us. So I totally went off track, but kudos to you. I just felt the need to say that. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, it means a lot. I'm, I'm glad. But shifting gears a little bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I'm going to use this example, and I don't know if it's my example to share, but my, my middle son, David, he, um, he doesn't have a straight-A student. He's not the kid that's like, you know, as per, you know, the elitist school system we have. And so he um, struggled a lot in middle school. And I remember, um, you know, what that happened with um, Eric Gardner and some of the, the really violent deaths that um, were uh, on people were learning about like, oh, this has already been happening, but now you're able to see it because people are recording it. And I remember when um, Kaepernick, the, the football player, decided to to take a knee and it became a thing where people were like, well, we're not sitting for the anthem. And, you know, I would have these conversations with my kids about what it all meant. You know, these are all sports fans. These guys, they love sports and they're like, Kaepernick's such a good guy. And they're here. And um, at school, you know, and I don't know, you're from New York, so you, you probably know this in school, they make you, you know, do the anthem and you have to stand up and like pledge allegiance and all this stuff. Jersey, but the same thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, um, one day, um, at school, there were two things, but one day at school, he, um, sat during the pledge of allegiance. I didn't know about it right away. Right. Because he didn't tell me. Um, and uh, I want to say it was maybe towards the end of the week. 
I guess he did it again or he kept doing it. And I got a call from the school and they're like, uh, your kid is not like listening. Um, and, uh, he's, you know, doing that. He's being rebellious or whatever. And so I asked him, I was like, what's going on? He's like, I don't want to stand for the flag. I have no, no, not doing it. Um, and I remember, you know, him, I don't remember his words, but I remember what he, what he made me feel like, oh, he's like responding to the things that, you know, I don't know, he was like 12. He's responding to the things that he's listening to and the, and the, the conversations we've been having. Um, and he's made a choice and not a choice that I told him about. And um, I had to fight tooth and nail because the, uh, why he did that, to sit with the babies unless you stand at consequences, like on the microphone in front of the entire school. And I had to write to the superintendent. I had to go to school and like explain to them like what this meant. And, you know, I, I think that all the schools that my kids have been a part of like are sick of me. Cause I'm, I'm always like, like, excuse me, this is, you know, they have rights. Um, but this particular one was, um, powerful because he did, I, I, you know, fought with him. I joined forces with him. And I said, well, on this side, we're not going to have the administration bully you. You have every right to, to not stand for the anthem or for the pledge or whatever. And he continued to sit. And, you know, in tandem, the school changed. They no longer did the pledge and they changed it to a school creed the week later. And so, and I'm thinking about this because I know that I'm not the one that sat, right? I wasn't the one that did it. He was the one that did it. But like, it was something that I talked to him about and that we were learning about and, you know, and then coupled with me not allowing leadership to just do whatever they wanted with him, but really fighting for him and standing up for him. And, um, he made a difference, you know, and I'm so incredibly like, it makes me so proud, you know, to know that, um, he did that, that our voices weren't silenced and that we were able to, um, you know, stand believed in. And see, that feels like a full circle moment in the conversation, right? Because you, you talked earlier about wanting to do transformative work. That is transformative work, right? It's your son standing on what you have ta- taught him and the values that you've instilled in him. He took that to school and then adding your fight for him, right? And going in there and digging your heels and saying, no, it's not going down like that. And then the school actually affecting change by policy. If that's not transformative work, I don't I don't know like what and it may not look like what we would want for ourselves. Right. And what we praise as a community. But like that is transformation. That's how transformation happens. I just had to say that. Um. <laughs> I want to take all the credit. I'm sure that the, the school leadership was having conversations about, mm-hmm. you know, but I will. I, I know for a fact that his the whole um, and I know I'm sorry. I just I think that even him like he that gave him something that taught him mm-hmm. something that he didn't know about himself. Um, that is just so powerful. Absolutely. So before I let you get out of here, there's one thing I want to talk about um, in terms of your partnership, you know, with Carlos um, in that, you know, a lot of people get married really young and don't make it this far, right? Because you, you evolve as different human beings, you figure out you want different things in life, career, there's all these different pressures um, economics, right? The economics of it, where it can really drive a wedge between people. How have you managed to have, um, this solid relationship and, and stay together all these years? Uh, 
question a lot. Well, I get that question after people ask me if I have the same baby father, which is so rude. That is people ridiculous. So, people are so fresh and rude. But anyway, um, this is the second question I get about our relationship. I'm going to tell you, it has not been perfect. Absolutely not. We've had an incredible, powerful journey, but it's also been difficult and challenging. And we've had really, really um, rough. I don't know that many relationships survive, right? Um, but I think that the one thing that we've always felt, and and, and I, I talk, we actually talk about this all the time, is like when I was 16 and he was 17, we didn't love each other. We liked each other. And we were infatuated, right? This is, that's not the same thing. I think that the reason we've been able to like stick together for so long, even through so many adversities, um, you know, right? Because obviously we've had adversities, you know, raising our family and trying to like, you know, but in our actual relationship, we've had adversity. And I think that one of the reasons is because we actually grew into it, if that makes sense. Like we learned to love each other and, and, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process because 32 year old Marielle is not the same as a 20 year old Marielle and 32 year old Carlos is not the same as 20 year old Carlos. And I think that over the years, we've just spent so much time and investment in learning each other and, learning to love each other. And thankfully we still love each other and, and we're still loving the new things we're learning about each other. So that's good. <laughs> um, and, you know, con- I think that one of the things that I like to, to preach and, and I work on every day to practice is um, respect, respect as a man and as a human in this world, in, in and apart from this relationship and this household and the, and the kids. You know, and I think he does the same for me, you know, kind of that space. Like we are people um, and respect, respect and making sure that we are helping each other. So like if I wanted to go and change my job, like it's not, you know, it's a how do I help you do that, babe? You know, and the same for, for him. I meant to mention that he just finished his, his bachelor's degree two years ago. Um, because he, you know, obviously waited all that time for me to finish. Um, and so now he has his own degree and, you know, it's, it was a moment in our household. Absolutely. Um, Like, yeah, we respect each other and we just continue to learn and how to love each other. And yeah. And I think it's important to, I mean, we always try to keep it real on this show, like just to talk about the fact that it's perfectly imperfect, right? Like it's not, I don't know anybody. I mean, you have those like one in a million couples who are like, we have never argued in 45 years. Uh, but I think those are the exceptions. Um, and, you know, we often have an idea of like what marriage and really long-term partnership is supposed to be. Um, and taking out of the equation, the fact that like, Respect is a huge deal and maintaining some semblance of individuality and individual happiness um, and then coming together and building this life together. Um, so I always am really happy when people come on this show and they're like, yeah, it, ain't, it hasn't always been great, <laughs> but, but we're still standing because um, that is the truth. Uh, so I always ask everybody if people can find you online somewhere if they want to reach out. Sure. Uh, I have a Twitter and a I think the Twitter is probably the best one. Um, It's just at Marielle M. Sanchez. Got it. Okay. So Marielle M. Sanchez. I won't ask you what's next on the horizon for you, even though I ask so many people that, because I feel like we've, you know, covered off on some of it. We're going to get these kids in college. That's for sure. (laughs) But um, 
there is so much more that I think um, in terms of your own personal vision that is going to come to fruition. And I'm just I'm just excited to sit back and see how that plays out. So um, I appreciate you coming on the show. Shout out to Talib Hudson. Yeah. Uh, a, a previous guest who recommended you. Um, yes. Another woman. I just I get so excited. I just got to say that again every time we have one. Um, but we appreciate we appreciate you coming on. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, and to our listeners, listen, if you want to learn more about what Marielle is doing or her thoughts, check her out on Twitter. You know what to do. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, all that great stuff. Tell somebody about it. Thank you for continuing to rock with us in the midst of this quarantine where we've had to go a little bit low tech and we're doing the best we can with it. We appreciate you guys uh, listening and taking it all in. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER. 